Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 682 for the 28th of February, 2020. This week, solid-state disk drives still cost more than comparably priced mechanical drives, but the prices have dropped enough that upgrading a computer's boot drive to a solid-state device is now the fastest and easiest way to accelerate the machine. In short circuits, a new point-and-shoot Nikon camera that costs $800 and has an 83 times zoom lens was a big hit at the Consumer Electronics Show. There are good reasons to want one, and a couple of reasons not to. Used carefully, PC Decrapifier is a handy tool, but it's all too easy to use the wrong way. No matter what camera you own, every photograph it makes can be improved, and the process may take only a few minutes. In spare parts, only on the website, how much of your personal data are you willing to surrender to get better service from companies? This may be a surprise, but it seems that crooks take vacations too. And 20 years ago, I wasn't using Audition because it didn't yet exist. Instead, I used CoolEdit Pro, and later it became Audition. Anyone who's been waiting for solid-state disk drives to become affordable has now waited long enough. Prices will doubtless continue to drop, but they're low enough now to be within range for even frugal shoppers. The easiest way to make an older computer faster involves replacing a standard mechanical drive with a solid-state drive. And that's easier than ever now because of the prices. Half-terabyte and one-terabyte drives are the most common sizes for notebook computers. Solid-state drives are manufactured in two primary form factors, one that exactly matches the two-and-a-half-inch case used for mechanical drives, and a longer, thinner shape that's used in some portable computers. The new shape is called M2 Type 2280SS. It measures 3.15 by 0.87 by 0.05 inches. That compares to the traditional 2.5-inch 7-millimeter SATA case. It measures 4.06 by 2.76 by 0.28 inches. Prices are about the same regardless of form factor. Crucial, SanDisk, and Western Digital all manufacture SSDs in the 250GB, 500GB, 1TB, and 2TB sizes, and at competitive prices. Expect to pay around $50 for a 250GB drive, $80 for a 500GB drive, maybe around $110 for a 1TB drive. Uh, larger 2TB drives are still a little pricey in the $200 to $250 range. Now, compared to dirt-cheap mechanical drives, SSDs do still appear to be expensive. Western Digital offers a 5400 RPM 3.5-inch form factor 4GB drive for just $90. And even 6TB Toshiba 7200 RPM drives are selling for less than $200. High RPM drives have faster data transfer rates, but they consume more power and they run hotter. The 5400 RPM drives are common in notebook computers, and 15,000 RPM drives can be found in locations where heat 
and noise are not a factor. Just as mechanical drives are available in a variety of performance ranges, so are solid-state drives. Now, it's safe to say that any, any solid-state drive from a well-regarded manufacturer will be a lot faster than any consumer-grade mechanical drive that's in the computer. Replacing a hard drive is a relatively easy do-it-yourself project for desktop computers and even for most notebook computers, but it's a project to be avoided if the computer is a tablet or any device that has a case with no screws. Those kinds of devices are held together with close-fitting parts and glue. They can be disassembled, but only by somebody who has the adequate training and specialized tools. Desktop systems are easy. Comparatively speaking, there's a lot more space inside, and some late-model desktop systems require no tools to open the case. Notebook computers are a little more complicated, but many of them do have an access plate that can be removed to reach the disk drive. Disk drives bought direct from SanDisk and Crucial may include installation instructions, and the manufacturers should have a downloadable manual that explains how to upgrade memory or disk components. If not, YouTube probably has a video that shows how to swap the disk drive in your computer model. Before replacing the old drive, it's essential to prepare the new drive. Free and commercial disk cloning applications can be downloaded. The free version of Paragon's Hard Disk Manager is a good choice to clone the drive. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. But some disk manufacturers include cloning software or offer it as an add-on. And you'll also need a cable to connect the new drive to a USB port for the cloning operation. But sometimes the best way to make a computer faster is to replace the computer. If you're bothered by slow performance and the computer is more than five years old, replacing it is a good choice. You'll still need to move applications and data, and maybe even the operating system, from the old computer to the new computer. If that's the case, PC Mover from Laplink provides everything needed, including a cable. Laplink has been in business for more than 35 years, so the company's experience dates all the way back to the days of DOS. Besides just moving the operating system, applications, and data, PC Mover can install any pending operating system updates and update applications that aren't current. Three years ago, my wife needed a new computer, and I gave PC Mover a try. The application did exactly what it said it would do, and nearly everything migrated perfectly. I did need to reinstall a photo application, and I needed to tweak the application that backs up files from Phyllis's computer to mine, but that was by far the fastest and easiest migration I had ever experienced. PC Mover can use your own wired or wireless network or a USB connection between the two computers, but the best option is a special network cable between the Ethernet ports on the two computers. Using the cable makes the transfer at the highest possible rate and doesn't bog down your home network. Each screen also displays prominently a phone number for assistance, but, you know, given the complete and accurate instructions provided at every step, I found myself wondering if anybody ever calls that helpline. I have heard that any time spent with a cat is never wasted. On the other hand, any time spent waiting for a computer is wasted. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, 
and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. short circuits, let's take a look at the Nikon Coolpix P950's extremely long reach. Nikon introduced an updated version of its Coolpix 900 at the Consumer Electronics Show earlier this year, and the camera was an instant hit with the attendees. One reason, the camera comes with a zoom lens that is the equivalent of 24mm to 2000mm on a standard 35mm film camera. That's an 83 times zoom range. And to put that in perspective, many point-and-shoot cameras have a 3 times zoom range, and a few exceptional cameras have 10 or 20 times zoom ranges. 83 is astonishing. And it's a point-and-shoot camera that sells for about $800. It weighs a little over 2 pounds, shoots both JPEG and RAW formats, and offers 1 4,000th of a second maximum shutter speed. Oh, and it can also create MPEG-4 and H.264 videos. At this point, you're probably saying, wow, as well you should be, but there's something else you should know, and that's the sensor size. Any camera with such a huge zoom range will have a tiny sensor. That's a given. The Coolpix P950 has a 1 over 2.3 inch sensor. That's 6.17 by 4.55 millimeters. Presumably the sensor is from Sony. The sensor size is close to the sensors found in phones such as Google's Pixel 4 and Apple's iPhone 11. Although Canon still manufactures most of the sensors used in its cameras, Sony supplies sensors to just about every other camera manufacturer, and that includes Nikon. The sensor size is important because it plays a large role in determining the quality of the image. Larger sensors produce better images, period. Or maybe question mark. The quality of images from smartphones is little short of phenomenal despite their tiny sensors. Larger sensors still produce better images, usually perform better in low light, have a greater dynamic range, and capture more information. But sometimes good enough is good enough. And the advantages of a gigantic zoom range might well eliminate any concern about the sensor size. That sensor is a new-style complementary metal oxide semiconductor, or CMOS, device with backside illumination. The back-illuminated sensor allows more light to be collected at the pixel level. This improvement enhances low-light performance and reduces noise. That means today's BSI CMOS sensors are able to produce images that rival those of larger sensors from just a few years ago. Larger sensors are still better, but smaller sensors have been improved so much that for consumer-grade cameras, it really no longer matters. Oh, and if you have a few more bucks burning a hole in your pocket, there's the Coolpix P1000, it costs $1,000, has a 125 times zoom range, that's the film equivalent of 24 millimeters to 3,000 millimeters. The P1000 was introduced last year.
Toilet paper for your PC is the slogan used by PC Decrapifier. It's an application that claims to speed computers by removing non-essential applications. It seems safe enough because it won't remove any application unless the user tells it to. That assumes that the user will have enough information to make an intelligent decision. But such a user would probably use the Windows Apps and Features component to select and remove applications. PC Decrapifier is free. It doesn't need to be installed or uninstalled. Just run the file that you can download from the developer's website. You'll find a link to that on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The application takes several minutes to examine installed applications, then offers three panels suggesting applications that many users remove, that are popular targets for removal, and everything else. My primary computer showed no applications in the first two categories, but lots of applications in the third category. Despite the warning at the top of the panel, some users are likely to believe that applications shown here can be safely removed. The warning from PC Decrapifier is explicit, though. Careful, it says, we may not have enough info and or don't recommend removing these. Applications on that list include Adobe Creative Cloud applications, WordPerfect's Office Suite, Microsoft Office, and a lot of additional helper applications that even a knowledgeable user might not recognize. Removing some of the applications shown in that list would eliminate essential components of desired applications, as well as applications that may be important to the user. So this isn't an application I could recommend using regularly but it can be helpful with a new computer. Manufacturers often include applications that many users don't want or need. The developer says, PC Decrapifier is a program designed to suggest and remove unwanted software. It can be used to clean off most of the annoying software that is typically shipped with new PCs. That last part is the most important part. The user still needs to be cautious when selecting applications to remove, but it's at this point that PC Decrapifier has its greatest potential. The developer's website lists the top 50 applications users remove. These include Amazon's one-button app, a variety of Hewlett-Packard applications, antivirus applications, various eBay applications, Norton Online Backup, and other apps the user didn't sign up for with the new computer. It doesn't matter much whether you use a $6,500 Canon EOS 1D Mark III camera with a $2,100 Canon EF 100-400mm zoom lens, a $400 Nikon D5300, a $130 Sony DSC-W830, or a smartphone when you take pictures. There are two much more serious considerations. The first consideration is your ability to see an image. Some people seem to have an innate ability to see good images, but anyone can learn. Lynda.com, which is now called LinkedIn Learning, can help with that, and a library near you might offer free access from home. Ben Long, Julianne Cost, Chris Orwig, and a variety of other talented photographers can show you how to develop an eye for photography. The second consideration is what you do with a photograph once you've clicked the shutter. This is important because every photograph can be improved over what came out of the camera. 
Film photographers often spent more time in the darkroom than they did creating the initial exposure. Basic cropping, dodging, burning, and lots of other techniques developed by photographers like Ansel Adams, Edward Weston, Joseph Karsh, and others brought out each image's potential. Today, no darkroom is needed, and on-screen editing goes far beyond what the photographers of the 1900s ever dreamed of. Programs such as Adobe Lightroom, Photoshop, and Camera Raw can now be used to tweak the exposure and color balance, darken overly bright areas, fix a blemish on a face, or even remove a person from a landscape image. You'll see a sample image on the TechBiter Worldwide website. It is certainly not a fine art image. It's just a snapshot taken at a park. The original image had some problems. There's an overall blue cast. That was the most disturbing to me. That was really easy to correct. I also felt there was too much room at the top of the image, and the composition wasn't helped by a rope on the left side and a pink hat in the lower left. A simple crop fixed all of those problems, and I included a little bit of rotation. Enhancing the color of the foliage in the background accentuated the feeling of fall, and some adjustments to modify contrast gave the image a little more pop. The total time required to make those changes was less than five minutes, but the improvement to the image was significant. A simple crop is often enough to convert a good image to a great image, but improving color balance and exposure can also help. These basic edits take little time, and they're important. Adobe's photo applications aren't free, but they are reasonably priced. For $10 a month, you have access to all of the photo applications. If $10 a month is not in your budget, the GIMP, that stands for the GNU Image Manipulation Program, runs on Linux, Windows, and Mac OS computers. Although free, GIMP tends to be somewhat confusing to use. Affinity's $50 Photo Professional is both powerful and inexpensive. Those who need to be able to create and edit vector images can add Affinity Designer for another $50, and Affinity Publisher was recently added to the mix for yet another $50. Whatever you choose, be sure to use it. Every image can be improved. Spare parts could doubtless be improved too, but we get what we get. This week, we get these segments. How much of your personal data are you willing to surrender to get better service from companies? This may be a surprise, but it seems that crooks take vacations too. And 20 years ago, I didn't use Audition because it didn't yet exist. Instead, I used CoolEdit Pro, and later it became Audition. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.